Tim Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his monthly appearance in the program. It's his monthly appearance. He's a senior editor at Fangraphs.com, Jeff Sullivan. Jeff Sullivan is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every month, Sullivan allows us to enter his refulgent mind for approximately an hour, his refulgent and fertile mind, and what follows Sullivan to discuss is Matt Joyce's unusual World Series MVP bonus incentive, attempts to recreate the conditions under which it was suggested by Joyce's representative, also how to title a weblog post but Royals outfielder Gerard Dyson in such a way that people will actually read it. That is the art of deception. We discuss which player is most like 50% of Mike Trout. Still a very good player. Which player is most like 50% of Mike Trout? And finally, having recorded this on the eve of the winter meetings, Jeff Sullivan recounts his initial experience of the 2015 winter meetings. I walked in looking for a familiar face. I did about a 10-minute lap. I got scared, and then I walked out the doors and I called my girlfriend. That dispatch from the front line of introversion and other dispatches just like it and what's to follow. What's not following is a sponsor's message. If there were a sponsor's message, of course, it would come courtesy SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com, but there is not a sponsor's message, so instead we turn to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Senior editor Jeff Sullivan. When does it begin? Right now. thinking in my head and I saw I thought to myself I thought <clears throat> here's the true crime of this gray and damp weather is that if I were to commit suicide on a day like this that would seem that would it would just seem like a grand cliche <laughs> you know right there wouldn't be a statement people would just be like oh well of course yeah yeah and it robs you even of that I want to ask you a question, Jeff. Did you – what was your life like? What was the experience for you like when you were voting on the American League Rookie of the Year? Uh, well, it was uh, it was in part delayed and then it was hurried when I realized, oh, I need to get to this. But Wait, what are the, uh, what are the exact no, – so you understand I'm part of the Boston chapter, uh-huh. which is a very – Robust chapter. Mm-hmm. And so even people who attend games with great frequency, like David Lorla, uh, David Lorla has never had a vote because there's so many people in the chapter. So I am not a priority mm-hmm. for Tim Britton, who is our benevolent chapter head, and uh, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, what is the timetable like? What is the process? <laughs> it's funny. I'm, as part of the Seattle chapter, I was also invited to to vote on like the Mariners team awards and it was, it's very simple there are three awards there's like player hitter of the year pitcher of the year and then like unsung hero award and I I went to zero games as a BBWA member this season in Seattle I did mm-hmm. I had clubhouse access I made zero uh, use of it which is less than even I expected and then I was asked to vote on an award that was uh, tabbed to a player who did all these little things that you could only see if you were present and understanding of of what players were up to. So I, I cast a vote based on absolutely nothing. Uh, it was not a decisive vote because I think the award went to, I think it was Nelson Cruz who I did not vote for. So kudos to him for whatever it is that he did this year, but it was not anything that I was aware of or could have been aware of. 
So that was a, a nice little twist, but that also didn't answer your question, which was about the Rookie of the Year award. I got an email Wait, did somewhere. did you have to vote? Did you have to vote? I probably could have abstained, but, you know, this is America. I'm not going to – I had voted <laughs> – I, I voted in every single little box in our mailed ballot in November. I voted for things – there was there were three – Three, two or three positions open with uh, with the Portland area like soil management. Well, I, can, I guess not company, but department. Something about yeah. soil. What I remember being on the ballot is the word soil, and there being three boxes. That meaning there are three positions, and so I voted for people to manage area soil. Now I'm going to level with you. I consider myself somewhat of an informed voter. I was not an informed voter for the soil management candidates. But I did cast my votes. On what basis? Well, uh, that's it's my citizen's right to not disclose. <laughs> yeah, I it made is. Decisions, and those decisions are now behind me. Wait, uh, so why does so you can't reveal? Although I'm sure that well, if I were if I were one of the losing soil candidates, <laughs> and I were listening right now, I'd be a bit discouraged <laughs> because I say. This is the depth of thought. Also, uh, one footnote to your previous comment. You said, of course I voted. I'm an American. Of course, voting is not compulsory in the United States. However, it is compulsory in other countries, some other countries. I know Brazil, for example, it is compulsory, at least has been. And actually what that does is to make a mockery of the electoral system. (laughs) There's really no perfect way to do it uh, because you find a lot of – you find a lot of untoward – bargaining and that sort of thing. A lot of uh, populist kind of uh, actions going on when everybody has to vote. And then there's so, the alternate approach where you could just mandate that everybody vote, count none of their votes, and just install whatever votes of theirs you choose as the government leader so, so that you may maintain your position. Yeah. As a, uh, right, as a dictator, benevolent or otherwise. Right. You know what a, You know what? one of the losing soil management candidates would have been thinking? Yeah. Maybe maybe he should have dug up more dirt on his opponent. <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, I got a I got an email from Jack O'Connell, I believe is his name, the the Yeah, Jack O'Connell. The the leader, uh the the autocrat of the BBWAA. Uh, I think it was in maybe August. It was just kind of like a heads up email saying, "Hey, you've been selected to vote in an award." And I was like, "Cool." And then I got a ballot link in September. Uh, I think it used to be that as recently as whenever Edinson Volquez was on the ballot, as recently, I guess that was 2008, they would mail you a ballot with names already on it. So, like in 2008, Edinson Volquez was on the ballot for National League Rookie of the Year, even though he was not eligible for the National League Rookie of the Year award. Uh, this year, and in, I think, a few years previous, you just Wait get a, a link... Go ahead. He was not eligible for it, but he was on the ballot. He was on the ballot. There, he had like three partial seasons the years before, so it must have been some mm-hmm. weird service time thing where he just missed the mark in the BBWA. Didn't catch it. Uh, he did not win the award, but he did get three second-place votes, I believe. Okay. Uh, that's rare, though. I assume that's rare. That's I, would, <laughs> I assume it's either rare or people don't bother to check. In any case, uh, then now the ballot is just a link to a page where you put in three, not even full names, just just three last names that you yeah. enter in order and only first names if there is some source of confusion. So it's as simple as possible now. You just put in three names and you are you have to vote before the start of the playoffs is, I believe, the one rule. Yeah. And so I, I waited till the season was over, as every voter should do. Not every voter does do. And, uh, and then I put in my three names. And the third place vote was easy. That was Tyler Naquin. And then all the deliberation was basically about 
uh, Michael Fulmer versus Gary Sanchez. Right. Both of them had cases. I'm not particularly interested in your reasons for them. You actually wrote a post to the effect of why you did vote for Michael Fulmer. I guess I'm interested in uh, I'm interested in the other some of the things that you're telling me right now, though, which is uh, the process, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, it's something that uh, to me is not entirely. Uh, well, I don't I don't think it's purposely opaque, uh, but uh, anyway, it's interesting to me. So you just put in three names. Mm-hmm. And you send yeah, it just, away. Just three last names. And when I put in Fulmer, I realized, well, there was another Fulmer on the White Sox who they might think I meant, but that would be stupid if they thought that. But anyway. you, you know, it's interesting, right? Because the the thing that you were doing, Jeff, has some consequence, right? Yes. And not, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, very little consequence. But certainly for uh, ultimately for Michael Fulmer and uh, for Gary Sanchez and, and for Tyler Naquin, some consequence, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's financial and then also for uh, perhaps gives them the, them and their families an opportunity uh to celebrate a successful rookie campaign so it's not it's not without consequence and certainly i guess your vote is shared right on the bbwa website yeah yeah it's all public right and people see it and uh um yet another reason for them to um to discredit you as a as a man and as a professional um but it seems like the process you're describing and even the ballot process where you're filling in circles and sending them off, it seems innocuous. It seems relatively plain and mundane relative to the possible significance of it. Oh, yeah, but the same goes for almost – I was just thinking uh, a little yesterday when I was writing the post about Andrew McCutcheon uh, and the Nationals that went up on Fangraphs on Thursday uh, – December December 1st. I don't know when this is going to go. <laughs> but I wrote a post about Andrew McCutcheon and the Nationals. And I don't I don't mean to come off big-headed or anything, but the fact of the matter is that people in the game do read uh, a lot of different websites including Fangraphs and and they do read things that might link Andrew McCutcheon to the Washington Nationals. And so I was as I was writing the post, one of the things I do to relieve the burden that I feel of of writing is just to remind myself, "Hey, this is just it's blogging for fun." No consequence. He used to do this for free. It's no big deal. Just write a post and then move on. And that, that works pretty well. But then I, I get stuck thinking, oh, crap. <laughs> People who know things will read these posts. I don't know if anything on Fangraphs necessarily has influence, but it at least is read by people of some import to us who are the writers and editors. And so it, even though you're just writing in a stupid little WordPress box that could go on a blog that's read by 10 people or 10 million people, you're, it feels like it's nothing, but then you hit schedule or you hit publish and then the post is published and you think, oh, well now, now not only might Mike Rizzo read this or Neil Huntington, even Andrew McCutcheon might read the damn post. I have no idea. Maybe some family members, family members read everything about the, the players they're connected to. And that's it, true. Do you, there's, I'm sure there's almost, it's almost sure. It's almost positive. One can almost be positive that someone in the McCutcheon family has a Google alert for Andrew McCutcheon's name. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And family members are crazy. And then you never know. Uh, one post that's speculating about an Andrew McCutcheon rumor—that's not going to do much. But there is there is a gravity to the posts that we put on Fangraphs, and we hear about it when people in the industry talk to us, and they're like, "Hey, I read this thing, or I like this thing, or I didn't like this thing, or or just when they express their awareness of what we're doing, it makes you realize, oh, right, this isn't." This isn't just like blogging for fun anymore. This there's significance to some extent to this, and our reputations yeah. in the industry somewhat depend on it. 
Yeah, and so the, the, that's happening at the same time. Of course, you've created, uh, you've forged your reputation, Jeff. Uh, um, I'm part on thousands of posts about which you cared very little, and so uh, <laughs> you've made it this far. So I, I have another that, one uh, I'm going to work on after this podcast. <laughs> the uh, the time for anxiety is probably in the past, not now. I think you're doing fine. Um, and uh, you know, I, I mean, what do you really have to lose? To it's so it's only uh, it's only it, you know the that's the nice thing about it. And I know I think I had probably talked about this with Kyle McDaniel at some point before he. Or maybe I've even talked about it with him since. But I think that he appreciates the ability, now that he's working in a front office, for example, uh, to have to, – uh, for there to be consequences to his opinions, <laughs> which is, which is uh, well, like every sword, that it's double-edged. Swords just have two edges. Sometimes only one of them is sharp, but they always have two edges. Otherwise, what you have is a circle, is a spherical <laughs> or sort of a cylindrical pointer – that's not a sword at all, is it? No, that's if that's just a dowel that you're Although holding. Well, I suppose like a uh, uh, in fencing, um, there are a couple of different events, and uh, not all of those swords have. Um, they they don't all have uh, like epia epia. Am I saying it correctly? How epia? The f- epia? would I know if you were Foil? pronouncing that word correctly? Foil, epia. Yeah. Anyway, uh, they, I th- they actually don't have, uh, as you know, uh, they don't have two edges. It's it is you know, it is it's, uh, cylindrical. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm just gonna you play a sound when you're done talking about fencing. And I'm just gonna sit this part. <laughs> what are your uh, <clears throat> follow up question? Huh. Do you a do you have a Google alert set for Andrew McCutcheon? Do I? No. Yeah. No, you don't. Okay. Do you have any Google Alerts set? No, I used to have one set for, I think, Lookout Landing, I think it was. I used to have one set just to see if people were talking about the blog, and then the blog got big enough that I realized, well, now I don't need to search to feed my ego. Now my ego is already fed on a daily basis just by mm-hmm. the site existing. All right. So no more no more Google Alerts? No more Google Alerts. I, yeah. I honestly don't even remember how to set one up. For some time, I had Google alerts that I would never check. I had one set for G.K. Chesterton, a British <laughs> author, <laughs> another one for P.G. Woodhouse, and then I never, whenever they arrived in my inbox, I didn't ever check them. And that uh-huh. was years, years of that, years about, of receiving. Uh, how about Max Schrock? No, see if I were, if I were really using my brain, I so much of uh, you know. Socrates said, "The unexamined life is not worth living," mm-hmm. and I think there are other reasons why my life isn't worth living. But this this piles on <laughs> because it's not it's not being closely examined. I even try I try to be conscientious, and yet uh, it's just not I'm just not I'm not there. I'm not Sometimes qualified. I think you can live a, a very examined life that you realize is therefore not worth living. Yeah, I had uh, <laughs> I had two friends in uh, graduate school. It was a writing school, and. Uh, one of them was writing invectives and involved the other. Justin <laughs> Justin said about Chris, he said, Chris, Chris proves that sometimes even the examined life is not worth living. <laughs> Just sort of <laughs> well, you're, to your point. Yeah. Um, yeah, but what I was saying – so I know that one time – this is regarding the, the question of like voting for Fulmer, et cetera. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, at some point I decided I wanted to leave my, my one – the undergraduate institution I was attending – Mm-hmm. Right, 
it was it, I had not done very well there, and I had gathered from the multiple conversations I'd had with an academic advisor and uh, some other folks there that they they would not be too bummed if I if I decided to leave, <laughs> and so I was uh, after like after my sophomore year, whatever. I was just, I just took a year off, but then I decided I wasn't going to go back. And all it took was I just wrote. I was like, how do I unenroll? Essentially, it was a, it was a school that was pretty hard to get into. I think they only accept like ten percent of the people that apply. So getting in is kind of difficult, right? And so I, so I said, how do I get out? And they said, <laughs> oh, you just sent us an email. <laughs> but I it could have anyone could have sent that email. That's true. Um, but so I sent the email, and uh, they're like, "Yeah, all right." I don't even know if I received a reply. They were just like, "Yeah, that's all. That's it. You're gone." <laughs> and if you want to get in, uh, I mean, there's no chance you can get back in. <laughs> there's no chance. <laughs> don't even think about it. Yeah. Oh, that that was that was frightening. So that that was a um, an exa- another example of the the consequences see, uh, actually being much greater than the actual uh, sort of process makes it feel. Yeah, I guess most most difficult decisions can be distilled to one seemingly very small decision. Like if not to go to the example of just the nuclear codes, but because it's the thing that came to mind for reasons that we don't need to discuss, you figure, well, you could just sit there and I'm gonna again I'll level with you again. I don't actually understand how these things work, but in my head, nuclear codes just means you like press some buttons and then things blow up mm-hmm. uh, shortly thereafter. And so you could just press some buttons, or maybe it, it makes more sense to just think about drones and drone strikes, and just you know the way the various ways that we compel people to die with our instruments of death. You can just sit there and you can press a button. Maybe you feel like you're playing a video game, and then a person's dead or a building mm-hmm. is destroyed, and it feels no different than playing a video game, which is one of the reasons I think people are against violent video games. But we don't we don't need to talk about talking points from the 1994 <laughs> Do you um would if if uh if I would give you a million dollars but it meant that someone on the other side of the world had to die would you accept a million dollars? You don't know anything about their health. So all I know is that I get a million dollars and yeah a person dies who otherwise would not be dying. In you don't that. know anything about their their medical state or or even their age. You don't know the person's age. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't, but I can easily see uh, myself being in situations where I would. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me ask you this question: You re- you recently written about Matt Joyce. This this could be just a two minute segment. It's very very possible. It would be reduced to that. Uh-huh. You've recently yeah. written about Matt Joyce. Matt Joyce, like many other players, now of course he was signed what to uh, what a three-year deal, two-year, okay. eleven million, two-year, eleven million, but also so with a, with an incentive in case he wins the World Series MVP. I'm not making that up. Which is what that will give him a third year or just money? Oh no, I think it's just like twenty-five thousand dollars, something ridiculous. I don't even know how you'd go into a negotiation and bargain for those things. I suppose the agents are probably to blame, I, unless Matt Joyce was like, "Listen, buddy, we're gonna go in there, okay." However many years, however many millions of dollars, I don't care. All right, that's your t- that's your territory. But if I don't have an incentive in there for winning World Series MVP, which by the way I plan on doing without hesitation, 
Then I'm firing you and I'm going to Boris. Maybe it's his motivation. Maybe without that incentive, Joyce would be like, I don't care. But now he knows I can get $25,000 <laughs> and all I need to put in is an extra month of work and I need to be better than everybody else at the most. In the World Series. Who presumably, presumably, the, I mean, the World Series frequently is populated by the best players. Some yeah. of the best players because that's how the teams get there. And so he would have to be better than all of them. I mean, okay, so granted, Matt Joyce feels like the kind of weird bullshit World Series MVP you can get because things are so random, but, you know, the A's part. So I wonder when you, when you have these negotiations and the agent <laughs> brings that up, because it, it doesn't, it's not just standard for any contract. Does it, when does the agent bring it up? How much time do they spend bringing it up? Does the team just laugh it off and be like, yeah, sure, whatever? Or like, do they, does the team push back? Or what, what did Joyce's representation Assuming he had a representation, this is Matt Joyce. He might have just gone in there himself. Like, what What does he have to give up in order to get that incentive in his contract? What was that worth to him? Well, it's interesting. And, I, yeah, as the – if you're the team, you don't – in theory, you don't want to laugh it off, especially with the player right there because mm-hmm. uh, you're like, yo. <laughs> like Billy Bean saying, like, <laughs> okay, buddy. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go to the World Series. Well, hey, yeah, think, about this. Be... think about this. Okay, so you've got you've, – let's say the incentive – I don't know what it is, but let's say it's $25,000. Maybe it's $250,000, but let's just say it's twenty five. So what are the odds of the A's winning the World Series? Maybe they're 100 to 1, something like that. I don't know. And yeah, or you could even say – if you want to say generically, they'd be you know 30 to 1, which is still pretty remote. Yeah, well, let's let's assume that they're actually these athletics, however. So let's say it's 100 right. to 1, and then there's going to be 25 players – that are on the A's roster in the World Series, and then there's going to be two rosters in the World Series. So just running some simple math, that that yields roughly a 1 in 5,000 shot of Matt Joyce winning the World Series MVP. Let's say the incentive is for $25,000. Therefore, it follows that maybe the A's would reduce the total guarantee of the contract by $5 in order to counterbalance <laughs> that incentive clause being in there. So would yeah. Matt Joyce take two years and $10,999,995 and add that incentive? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think that – so one of your multipliers I think is probably off, right? Because you said, did you assume a 25-man roster? Yeah. How many like at any given? How many players are actually uh, like a long reliever is not going to win it? Uh, probably a middle reliever is not going to win it. A closer could win it. Yeah. So maybe there's like 15 or 17 players who could reasonably win. Yeah. Okay. So then let's let's say it's 16. Okay. So then you've got oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But it's it's not going to be a lot more than five dollars. Yeah. Maybe seven. You know. That's a seven dollar. It's just, yes, it's, it's true. It's a seven dollar bonus essentially. So maybe, so maybe Joyce barges into the room and he's like, "I want two years, eleven million and seven dollars," and then he bargains from there, such that if he loses that seven, <laughs> he still gets its value back. Yeah, or whatever he said, I want two years, eleven million dollars, and someone to pay for this chicken salad sandwich <laughs> that I just bought at Panera on my way here. And they're like, all right, well, we don't have seven. <laughs> Billy Bean is <laughs> checking his pockets. I don't have seven dollars, but what if I offer you an un- <laughs> an unlikely twenty five thousand dollar bonus? And Matt Joyce says, "I like those odds." 
this is one of those things where I would be delighted to read like a long form article about how these things work, even though I might be the only reader of it. I just want to know where these things come from because a lot of contracts have these these clauses and they don't mean anything except maybe they do mean something. Like does Joyce think is does Joyce know this is even in his contract? It's either the most or the least important part of it for him. I think I, I've definitely spoken about this uh, on this subject with Dave Cameron, right? And it's the idea. It's it's the athletes typically exhibit, um, and probably in their own words, we could find evidence of this too. But certainly in in many of their actions regarding their contracts, etc., players frequently bet on themselves, mm-hmm. right? And it makes sense because any player you're seeing in the major leagues was one of the best players in every other league in which he ever played, mm-hmm. right? He, he like They're all used to being really good. They've all become accustomed to that. And so betting on themselves has been a pretty successful endeavor up to that point. The majors obviously pose a greater challenge, but, uh, but weighed against all of the data they've collected so far, the bet on themselves is, is a good one. Um, and I was actually thinking about that. We're, we're talking about it with regard to what is seems like it could be you know an absurd bonus but beyond that i was thinking about it with regard to the language in or what appears to be the language in the new cba regarding qualifying offers mm-hmm. um because the players union seems to have not really pressed the issue of the luxury tax threshold very hard um which does seem which seems to be the thing that is i don't know if i would say cheating them out of millions of dollars but it's certainly suppressing uh, contract values and therefore, you know, uh, constantly decreasing the, the uh, overall share of revenue in baseball to which the players have access. Mm-hmm. That's not. There's no really argument for that. This been. I think it's gone down from like 55 to 45 percent over the last 10, 15 years, something like that. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, that's at least the public numbers. I've heard that the in uh, the actual numbers are are much less dramatic than that. Uh, so there's there's something in there. I don't. This is something I was talking about a year ago with Dave in the car, but uh, those numbers do not reflect reality. But the player share is is smaller, for sure. It's smaller, right? Right. And 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 who, the, the focus on the luxury tax threshold would probably benefit a greater number of players than merely focusing on um, draft pick compensation or whatever sort of compensation for qualifying offers. Mm-hmm. But I, I assume that there is – because there are only so many players that on whom this this uh, decision to change the qualifying offer structure has any um, has any bearing, right? Mm-hmm. How many players per year? I don't know, 10 or 20? 10 or 20, right. And that, those are the, all the ones that – and some of them are like locks to receive a qualifying right. offer, right? right? And it's not like it was ambiguous ever. So – but the thing is if you're if – you're, if you're a player who's gotten to that level, then you probably once again, you probably when you're saying, "Well, we're talking about qualifying offers," that applies to me because I'm going to be a sought-after free agent. It, for some players, that has to be a thought that goes through their head, even though if reality would suggest uh, something to the contrary. Mm-hmm. Do you accept this premise or not? I can buy it. I do not. I do not dismiss the premise. Hmm. All right. Well, that's all. I was all of that talking was just leading up to you looking to not be dismissed. So you were going to lead from Matt Joyce to the qualifying offer somehow, right? So, 
No, no, well, not necessarily Metro's, but this is, again, it's an instance of a player betting on himself. Metro's is like, World Series MVP? That's important to me. $25,000. A's. <laughs> or $7. But he's like, he's like, why would I, why would I get $7 now when there's a pretty good chance I'm going to get that $25,000 later on? <laughs> you wonder how many players in a clubhouse, 25 men in there on average, I'm not kind mm-hmm. of the journalist. How many of those players are thinking I'm the best baseball player in this room? Um, more than is the answer, <laughs> I assume. But okay, how many angels do you think are sitting <laughs> in that clubhouse? Yeah, can I tell you? Uh, um, you don't have to share one of your own. But on that same topic, allow me to share with you an embarrassing thought I had as a teenager. Uh-huh. Can I share an embarrassing? I mean, I had a number that I would not. <laughs> I'm never going to share publicly. Uh-huh. But I, had, I remember being on a bus going from New York to Boston, and I thought I was pretty hot <laughs> on account of my SAT scores, etc. <laughs> which is, which is, I mean, that's already an embarrassing thing to say aloud. But I was, I had a real, I had a real high opinion of my intelligence, and I remember thinking on this bus. From New York to Boston, I remember thinking, I'm probably the smartest person on this bus. <laughs> that's uh, that's sad. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that if you are an Angels player, you join the Angels, you're called out by the Angels, you're already with the Angels, and you're not Mike Trout, mm-hmm. that you go in there, and in any other clubhouse, maybe it's like, oh, I'm. I'm one of the people running a race, and I can probably win this race. But then you, you're with the Angels, and you're like, I'm running a race. Ordinarily, I could probably win this race, but that person is a Chevy Camaro, and mm-hmm. that is just that's just a person, but he's also a car, but he's a person. He's much faster than I am. He's <laughs> undeniably much faster than I am. He's somehow mechanical. He's like, when the gun goes off, he's 60 yards away. Wait, Mike Trout is a Chevy Camaro, too? I think, I mean, I accept it. I, realistically, any vehicle. Any vehicle is, is far superior to man- in a race, aside from one of those bomb-sniffing drones robots, that I think those are very slow, or the or the volcanic monitor crawlers, those little spider machines that have to go over rubble to go measure like gas output. Those things are slow as. F- <laughs> There's some it's pretty dangerous smack talk going on right now. Well, they need to be. They need to have secure footing, but then I guess they're they're not so slow when they fall. What about a moon rover, or like a like a. Is it a moon rover? A Mars rover? Yeah, I don't actually know because I, I've never seen one in action, but I know in The Martian, the one that Matt Damon had access to seemed to move pretty quick. Yeah, but isn't that only after he modifies it? Does you he modify it? Somewhere? something that I do not remember. Yeah. Yeah, I, he, I'm sure he did modify it to get his his radio playing and uh, and to get the top off, but I don't remember if he made the engine faster. Okay. It was probably a critical part of the movie, but it slipped my mind. This actually, I haven't even asked the question I I had originally about Matt, Matt Joyce. <laughs> it just it occurs to me. I was wondering me. about that. Matt Joyce, as you note, uh, hit for what an inordinate amount of power this past year. Yes. After having had quite a poor season with the Los Angeles Angels the year before. Yes. When he knew most assuredly he was not the best player on the team. Uh-huh. This segment, this segment that we're doing about Matt Joyce right now, I feel like mm-hmm. it's actually lasting longer than his time with the Angels on account of how bad he was. So Matt, so Matt Joyce had a good season, and it appears to have a number of the telltale signs of other offensive 
uh, breakouts in recent years, especially power-related breakouts, right? I think you mentioned a couple names. You probably mentioned Josh Donaldson. Yep. Uh, and then you mentioned Bobby Tewksbury, the noted, what, hitting instructor, hitting consultant? Yeah, I didn't name him uh, by name because I didn't want to try to remember how to spell it, but he was the one who worked with Donaldson. And then there was the one who worked with J.D. Martinez, who also worked with uh, with Matt Joyce. I feel like those are the two coaches everyone's going to because they've had such success with individual cases. Right, and the uh, and the results uh, seem to to bear out the wisdom of this particular approach, right? Which is, I don't know if it could be summarized. How would you summarize it? It seems to be a lot of lift the leg and lower the hands, and uh, and somewhat you get a little more loft. Uh, it's a more aggressive swing. I'm not a swing expert, and I'm I'm just thinking now about Joyce specifically because he's the one I looked at most recently. But he he basically lowered his hands, so now his hands have less distance to travel to get to the swing zone, and the the bat also has less distance to travel to the swing zone on account of the hands are closer. The bat follows the hands, and it gives. I think the way that I imagine, I don't know if this is exactly true, but the way I think of it is the less distance that the hands and the bat have to travel. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are more able to make contact, but I think it means you have greater consistency in your swing path because there's less time for your swing path to vary, uh, to to change from where you want it to be to where it actually is because the, your hands are just covering less less space. So I think that you have Joyce getting a more consistent swing path, which should, in theory, lead to more consistent good contact. His results would certainly indicate that he made more consistent good contact. Now, the downside with Statcast is we only have it for two years, uh, which capture the best and worst offensive seasons of Madras' career. So I don't really know what he was doing before when he was a pretty good hitter, mostly with the Rays or the Devil Rays. Uh, so it's it's very possible he's just kind of back to being that. But the changes that he made, they're new. He didn't look like that before. Stackhouse loves him, all that stuff. He's and is there a question, like isn't there a question of pitch selection as well? Yeah, it. I think that also because his hands are closer to the swing zone, that I think that gives him a little more time to make a decision before he uh, before he wants to swing or not. Now he's never been an over aggressive hitter, but he laid off a lot of pitches last year. He was very aggressive over the plate and very not aggressive everywhere else. And I think that was just a function of him having an extra split second or two before he uh, before he pulled the trigger. Yeah. So now, when you see players making these these adjustments, and well, whether you identify, you identify one or the other thing first. Maybe you identify the adjustments. Maybe you identify the improvements, in particular, you know, home run rate or whatever. Mm-hmm. At this point, do you just kind of uh, are, are you when you see this happen, are you just like, yep, that uh, that guy found out the magic trick, and now he's going to be good? There was a there's a player some years ago who mentioned to actually mentioned to Dave then Dave related to me so this is second hand information maybe third I don't know how it works that the player's belief was that uh, the average player could make whatever number of tweaks uh, you can imagine but that the his own true talent level would would find him that a player was only as good as his ability and that there weren't really that many adjustments you can make to make yourself considerably better. Now, we, we know that isn't always true because there are cases like J.D. Martinez or Josh Donaldson or Jose Batista or whatever. And, there are and, for pitchers, and for pitchers, there probably is a little bit more variation, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look at Corey Kluber, for example. But uh, So I I think that one of the, one of the difficulties 
of this day and age and having so much information available to us is that we know, every one of us knows that the best thing you can do is to look at a player's projection. The best thing we can do is to look at a player's 2017 steamer or zips projection or both and say that is the most likely output because if the proje- if the projections were wrong, then they would have been tweaked to be more right. So we are always fighting against those projections and the reality is that in most of the cases the projections are better than our guesswork. We write a lot of posts about players who we think have made little changes. I I do the same thing and many times those don't pan out. It, those, those players regress or they go toward their projection and that's just how it goes. But with with so much information you can talk yourself into believing hey I think the projections are wrong. Now most of the experiments that have been done on this have shown that humans are not better than projections uh, at mm-hmm. tr- maybe trying to identify outliers, but we're always pursuing who those outliers might be. And with, with Matt Joyce, I know absolutely you can't ignore what happened two years ago. You can't ignore his projection. You can't ignore his track record of being a slightly above average hitter. And that's probably why Matt Joyce just signed for two years and $11 million and an absurd contract incentive. But there is, there's so much in there that I really do. I don't 100% believe that Joyce has made himself a lot better, but I'm more than 50% believe it, which is why I, I wrote the post. And if he regresses, well, so be it. But there's a lot of really compelling evidence with him, more than with a lot of players. The fact that he so dramatically increases exit velocity and balls in the air, that's big. He has a three-mile-per-hour gap over second place, uh, who was Sean Rodriguez, who I think signed an almost identical contract, incidentally, with uh, with the Braves. But... It's always a struggle. You'd never want to be that stat head, the analyst who's like, there's the projection, but here's what I think is true, because that just makes you look really silly when we've been beating the projections drum for so long. But every so often, I think there there are definitely exceptions, and we are going to be prone to writing about those exceptions as opposed to the players who we think will hit their projections because the other ones are interesting. Yeah, if you say... I mean, so to a post like the Joyce one, uh, do you feel like there's a, essentially a disclaimer that... That uh, if it doesn't appear explicitly, appears uh, metaphorically, figuratively, figuratively, it appears figuratively, something to the effect of uh, Matt Joyce will likely uh, return to his projected levels. Those reflect his true talent. However, if they don't, this is the reason why. Or this is probably the reason why. I think that that is usually true with Joyce. I think there's a little more evidence. I think it's I think it's more likely with him that he has fundamentally changed as a hitter he's just i i think he's gotten to be a better version of what he was uh but most of the time i think i think yeah it's it's us going out on a limb and saying probably this is nothing maybe 60 40 maybe 70 30 this is nothing but here's something you can at least hang your hat on because all anybody ever wants is is hope for something better yes and people need places uh on which uh, they need hooks on which to hang their hat yeah as you note rightly um, it's possible by the time uh, that I've published this, Jeff Sullivan, this episode, we will already be looking at each other's faces mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. Winter meetings. Yes, home of this year's was, winter meetings. It was going to be funny. If they didn't have a CBA agreement, I wonder what we would have done. Would we be uh, – sorry, would we be out of a job if there was no baseball? I <laughs> well, I mean, if there was no baseball forever – uh, we would have, a, at the very least, a very challenging job. But <laughs> if there was just a delay in baseball, and you figure there wouldn't be a lockout, but if if the CBA weren't agreed to, there was a the talk that the teams would just skip the winter meetings. But we wouldn't skip 
going to Washington, D.C., we've already invested the money. We've already paid with David Appleman's money to get there. Yes, and David Appleman's already made one of his classic restaurant reservations. <laughs> and so those cannot be undone. No, they can't be. It's true. I will not let them be undone. Yeah. So that is a free meal. So I wonder what we would have done. We would have just hung out, the, the six or seven or eight of us, and been like, well, this is easy. <laughs> What I want <laughs> what I want to ask you is this. Uh I've been to two winter meetings, this will be my third. Mm-hmm. Um both of the ones uh, I attended were in Nashville just because of a variety of um circumstances mm-hmm. and uh I have found them to be a different a different thing than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. I don't know I actually don't necessarily know what I anticipated. I do know that I I end up going I end up arriving at the usual location, um, very excited. And then what I do is I begin to cower. Uh, <laughs> and then I drink to um, because I'm anxious. And then I will typically have a long conversation with one person who's of medium importance in a major league organization. Uh-huh. And then I have a hangover, and then I just remain a shut-in for the rest <laughs> of the time that I'm there. That's typically my, my version of it. That's only two of them. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm curious. Uh, well, I'm curious about a number of things with you. What are the What are the winter meetings like for you? How are they different than you anticipated? Let's begin there. Okay, so I've been to three winter meetings. I've worked. This is going to be my fourth. I could have uh, had five with Fangraphs now, but I skipped the one in Florida because holy, there was no way I was going to go to Florida on purpose. So I've been to Nashville twice. I've been to San Diego. Now I'm going to DC, and I definitely didn't know what to expect with the first one. The most recent one, of course, is the one I remember the most, and uh, for that one, we rented a house that was, I don't know what it was, a half mile, or sometimes it felt like about eight mile walk from where yeah. the actual winter meetings were, and what I remember about that one was that it felt mostly, not entirely, but mostly like doing regular work uh, in my own house if my own house were different on a river <laughs> in Nashville, Tennessee. Because well, that's the, a strange thing, right? Because that was, what is it, the Gaylord, uh, whatever it's called, Music Land, Opryland. Land. Yeah, we were staying, and if you just walked out to the street on which we were staying, it looked like a perfectly normal residential neighborhood. Mm -hmm. However, if you walked like half a block away, (laughs) it was it was like you know the sort of things you find in the you know the outskirts of cities, maybe kind of like a there's like a, a sort of a strip mentality to it, and then of course that that hotel that complex is gigantic and even when we had sort of even when you arrive on the grounds of it like you still have an quite a walk to actually get into the doors oh god yeah you would see it it was kind of like i don't know maybe when you first see mount everest on your trek toward mount everest you're like there it is i'm almost there no i'm not (laughs) i have several ridges to surpass except there are no ridges you just see it and it never gets bigger (laughs) uh right so yeah that was that was a that was strange enough in itself uh so for you, it's been like working at some level. It's been like working like you normally would, and then yeah. So so the last one, what I remember. So uh, we we had the house, and I didn't have a media credential because we only got a certain number of them for Fangraphs, and Dave allotted them to like Laura got one, Eno got one, and somebody else. I think people who were going to do actual interviews. There was no benefit to having a media credential, so you could get into the media room which is just a big room with long Media. tables where you set up a computer and, and you write. Around and you can, go, to, you can go talk to Joe Madden at some point. 
Yeah, if you want. Yeah. Uh, so, so August and I didn't have those media credentials because whatever. So we basically sat in the house and wrote normal posts reacting to news just like we would if we were at home. We were just reading Twitter and then being like, all right, I take this one and then I write about it. And then you just do that, which made it feel a little bit like a waste in that regard. But then uh, the day ends, or I guess the days never end, but you were writing stops for some amount of time and you, you figure out what we're doing for dinner and or you head over to the complex. Because we don't get rooms in the complexes where the teams are, but we still go to where the teams are. They're all in the same complex. And uh, and so you go over there, and then you, you walk in, and you're like, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> where do I put my body? <laughs> yeah. And the place is so huge also. So if it's always beneficial to go in there with someone you know or hope that you're going to run into someone you know. Because I, I walked in there... Last year, I don't know if it was Tuesday or Wednesday night, just thinking like, all right, I'm here. I feel obligated to come hang out. And then I walked through the doors. And then I looked by yourself around. at this point. I, yeah, by myself. This is late. Everybody else is doing something else. I walked in looking for a familiar face. I did about a 10-minute lap. I got scared. And then I walked out the doors and I called my girlfriend. And <laughs> I, just, yeah, I did not. The whole industry... Whether it's players or agents or executives somewhat or, or TV people, they're so aggressively social and consider themselves important. And many of them are important. I'm not important and I'm not aggressively social. I've gotten more social in my years, but I don't, I don't have a loud booming voice. I am more of a like group of four over an outside patio table at a bar. Yeah, there are a lot of, of confident men. There are a lot yes. of men who, who have like haircuts. They have these haircuts <laughs> and then collars. Yeah, there are a lot of men with collars and haircuts, and and confident-looking faces, all shaking. They they see each other and they shake their hands. Oh yeah, it's there's so much confidence in the entire complex. I feel immediately like I don't belong. I'm sure you you have felt similarly, and I definitely feel good around, uh, you know, coworkers or the few people in the game who I do know. But then if you don't know where they are, it can be very difficult to find them and if you don't find them then you're just some idiot walking around lost in the halls. Here's the here's the here's the population that you have ignored because there is of course this and you you know you, you walk around and you see I remember from last year for example I, I felt like I couldn't avoid running into Joe Madden. You go anywhere <laughs> and he's just, he's just Joe Madden is everywhere. He's ubiquitous. Uh-huh. Uh, and the year before that I it was sort of the same thing I, I saw like with Peter Gammons. Peter uh-huh. Gammons I saw everywhere I turned I saw Peter Gammons. I was not I was not attempting to run into Peter Gammons. I <laughs> respect his work. What a great career. He seems to have quite a bit of integrity and he seems to treat people well. But I have nothing to say to Peter Gammons uh, uh, because we're not friends. You know what I mean? And I think right. that that is probably a calculation on his part. Yeah, I think so. There's a couple of things. We always get asked, someone always gets asked by fans, like, is it worth going to the winter meetings as a fan just, just to see? Because it's, it's exciting. I was at a... a Christmas party a year ago with two, uh, with uh, some of my family lives in suburban Portland. They had a bunch of people, their friends from the neighborhood over, and they like the the husbands found out that I wrote about baseball, and I was like, oh yeah, I just got back from the winter meetings. And they're like, the winter meetings, that's so <laughs> cool. And I was like, okay, uh, this is apparently the audience, uh, and I get it. It's it's got a lot of allure because you know it's it's a sexy place where baseball magic happens or whatever. Uh, so when I think about it, I think as a fan. 
I I basically go in there as a fan now. I'm just a fan who knows maybe a few more people in in the rooms. But I, two things stick out. One, I think you you think of the winter meetings as a place where there's a lot of action, a lot of trades and negotiations. But when you're there, even when something happens, there's not like an interior alarm that goes off that says Andrew McCutcheon has been traded, and you don't see people like running down the halls, scrambling in in this chaotic frenzy to go do whatever it is you do when you learn Andrew McCutcheon's been traded. It's more like, oh, I just heard on Twitter that a trade has happened and I'm in a hotel. And that is it. <laughs> and the other part of it is, so that part is underwhelming. And then the other part, you, people always talk about the, uh, the excitement of hanging out at the bar and socializing with important baseball people after hours, which is true. It does happen. You see a lot of like the connected journalists. They'll go, people who have been in the game for decades who will just have conversations with people who are essentially professional friends. But I am not professional friends with baseball legends. I'm not professional friends with baseball up-and-comers. I'm just someone who has some internet friends, some of whom I recognize their faces. But I've been when I've been to the winter meetings, I think every single year that I've been there, I've gone to one of the bars just to see, or maybe because whoever I'm with wants to go there, and I'll see right over there, 10, 15 feet away, there's going to be Bruce Bochy and Jim Leland talking to one another. Mm-hmm. And they're just going to be there They'll be talking to one another against the wall, and they'll both have at least one drink in their hands, sometimes several more, and they'll just be having a, a very presumably important baseball conversation, but actually probably not an important conversation, and probably not even about baseball. But you'll be there. They're very recognizable people. Uh, you can use whatever familiar baseball name, Tommy Lasorda, if you want. You'll see people who are sport icons at the bar, and you won't do anything. You'll just feel this satisfaction of, I am in the same area as someone who is important to what I am, but I will definitely not interact with those people. It's it's like it's a seeing lot like a celebrity a, on the street. Yeah, it's kind of like being a backup singer, probably. <laughs> You're technically there. And, uh, you know, if someone were to look around, they would see you. They would have to acknowledge your existence. <laughs> and yet, if you were replaced by any number of other people... The effect would be largely the same. Yeah. It's not even quite like being a backup dancer. It's like being an applicant to become a backup dancer. And then, like, <laughs> Britney Spears or whoever is not even the one who's making decisions, but maybe she's watching from a corner of the room while a bunch of people dance and you wait your turn. And and so, yeah, the effect is the same. If you were – if I were replaced by any other person in that situation, Jim Leland wouldn't know. He'd think there are people around me, and I don't care about any of them. And – and you, so you, you get to share the space, which is kind of cool. I guess it's a little like having field level tickets to a sporting event where you think like, I'm almost one of them, but you're never going to be one yeah, of you're them. Not, you're not going to be Jeff. Well, yeah. oh, so the other population that exists at the winter meetings that I, uh, the population of which I was entirely ignorant before I arrived was the, the job fair attendees. Mm-hmm. And this is usually a group of, it's almost exclusively young men. Um, who are following their dreams, <clears throat> but uh, they are typically college undergraduates, I would say. Typically, I'm not saying uh-huh. exclusively, typically college undergraduates who lack the uh, two qualities that uh, older men typically possess, which is a suit that fits well <laughs> and also clear skin. And uh, so it's possible to walk around and you will see a number of young men. Not, now, listen, I am not an Adonis. I'm not suggesting that. However, because of my age, um, well, because of my age and my job, I do not need a suit. 
<laughs> because no one's going to be impressed by me anyway, <laughs> and I've come to terms with that. Secondly, my skin's cleared up, Jeff. My skin's uh-huh. cleared up. Or covered right. by a mustache. Yeah, that's right. And this is mostly just a, that's just a result of sticking it out. However, you do see a lot of people who have a whiff of ambition around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and that was not uh, someone I, that was not a group I ever really intended to see. It's almost a sad, desperate ambition. I shouldn't say almost because that's that is essentially what it is. Yeah, Some but of them, of course, will get jobs. At a certain age, though, ambition like any ambition is kind of sad, isn't it? Because you don't yeah, have I think the. This is, this is sort of the subtext of the conversations that we always have when I come on this thing is that we, at some point, we get to the point where we say, well, we're in our 30s and ambition is stupid. And what do you do now <laughs> when you're satisfied with your lot in life? You just kind of sit and you think, this is my kingdom. And then you die. <laughs> I have no desire to do, achieve anything, honestly, at this yeah. point. Yesterday, uh, last night, my girlfriend and I went to this talk, uh, given by some people who recently went to, to Patagonia, they went to try to climb Cerro Torre, which is a a large granite mountain in uh, in Argentine Patagonia near the border of Chile. And they, as part of their trek, they went and crossed part of the southern South Patagonian ice sheet, uh, which is a very cool feature, one of the only and therefore largest ice sheets in the world. And I saw it, and there was an odd feeling within me, which was one of there's something I want to do still, and it was that. And usually I think, well, I've done enough. You know, <laughs> there's there's nothing left for me. And when yeah. I think this is about the age when most people have kids if they haven't had kids yet, and then that gives you a thing to live for. But if you're not doing that, then you think, well, I guess it's time to just fade away a little yeah, bit. Yeah, fade away. Yeah, it's. I, I would actually say it's a liberating uh, sense. It's it is as long as you. It takes. It takes some time to come to terms with it. But once well, you're you also, to, to be fair, you're a little bit younger than I am. Yes. So you, we could be at different, at different place, um, places along the curve. I'm catching up, man. No, you, you, well, you're staying the same amount behind, technically. Although, I guess as far as the curve is concerned, you, you might be at a steep part of it. Uh-huh. Because I, uh, no, I think that's, I think that's exactly true what you're saying. You have <clears throat> the sense where you say, I'm gonna do, I think I'm gonna do, they still, I still got it in me to do something great. <laughs> and then you, you uh, you just stay around for a while longer, and you realize that that was that was foolish to think that. Was, and you guess what? What is the great thing that you can do? What is the great thing? There's no great thing. No. 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 No matter what you achieve, someone will have achieved something greater than you. And you're gonna be forgotten. You're gonna yeah. be forgotten. It's not like you know. You who's the what's the oldest name we know? Hammurabi. <laughs> I mean, is that Hammurabi? He, what, I, he invented. I what do you know, know about him? Come to think of it, what do you know about him? He invented a code. Hammurabi yeah. has a code. And you know what? It might not have even been his code. He just gets credit for it. That's he gets the, credit. Nobody yeah, that's cares it. about plagiarists. Mm-hmm. Just yesterday, I was reading. This is probably a more well-known story than than I know. But I was reading a book uh, just last night. I didn't finish the whole book. That part doesn't matter. But it was talking about Darwin, who is publishing his paper on natural selection, one mm-hmm. of the crucial junctures in in Darwin's career. And as he was writing that paper, he was rushed into completing and publishing that paper because he found out there was another guy who was onto the exact same idea as him. Yeah. Who wound up publishing a paper in the same journal. Gary. And so, yeah. And no one remembers Gary. Gary Nobody f***ing remembers Gary. It's Darwin who gets all the credit. Because why? Because he wrote a little bit faster maybe because he was tipped off that Gary was hot on his tail. That sucks for Gary. <laughs> 
<laughs> it does suck for Gary. And, uh, you know, and it's not like either of them is benefiting. You know, Dar- Gary's not suffering and Darwin is not reveling in his uh, whatever sort of fame or credibility he gained professionally. Right. And you know He's what? Even, even when you achieve, your achievements get surpassed anyway. Darwin was wrong about cataclysms happen to the earth. They happen all the time. We are the greatest one. Or if you think, okay, 10, 15 years ago, way to go, Billy B, and you revolutionize the game of baseball because you fell in love with OBP. Well, guess what? Nobody cares anymore because OBP is stupid. It's not stupid, but it's no, far it's less stupid. important than, than people used to think. No matter what you achieve, there's going to be some sponsored by Red Bull jumping onto a trampoline from the f- space and he's going to live and then that's it. He just outdid whatever you Wait, did. Wait, who did, who did that? It was, Is I it? don't know, some dude like a year or a year and a half ago. That guy jumped from space? He jumped from like the upper, upper, upper atmosphere, border of space, onto a net in, I don't know, Arizona or something. And his his wife was there watching like, this is my husband's dream to fall from space and live. And like, he made it and he lived, but he didn't like, he didn't easily make it. You know, he was, I don't know, like 10 yards from, you know, the ground. And the ground is a lot less forgiving than a net that's specially designed to catch a man at terminal velocity. Huh. So like at the best case scenario, the wife is like, well, my husband still is not dead. He fell. Wait, he fell without a parachute. I believe he just fell from from space. From space near near space <laughs> near to space. I might be misremembering, but I I'm pretty sure that I'm not. And he was either Red Bull sponsors this crap all the time. But I don't know what the next one is. If you try to jump from in space, well, you're not going to fall to the earth. Is Red Bull sponsoring the the post you're attempting to write for tomorrow morning? <laughs> <laughs> I think if they were, that it would be going a lot faster. <laughs> what are you writing about for tomorrow morning? Well, okay, so here's the thing. The post is technically about Gerard Dyson, but I need to headline it in such a way that people don't know that going in. Otherwise, they, <laughs> otherwise they're not going to click it. Like, you might notice in the Matt Joyce post, Matt Joyce was featured nowhere in the headline. Oh, yeah, that's right. Smart. Yeah. It's like, it. I feel a little bit guilty because it's, it's a clickbaity technique, but it's it's not... As long as you don't mislead, then I think there's a difference between a clickbait headline and an interesting headline. Yeah. And we we should strive for the interesting headlines that aren't uh, so... Uh, no, no, you know what? So yesterday I saw <laughs> an article that was linked to Mother Jones. I don't have a strong opinion of Mother Jones one way or another, but they had a headline to some article, probably a quick blog post, and the headline was uh, paraphrased but close to accurate. Uh, Donald Trump just... Uh, just released a dangerous tweet, period. This is not normal, period. And I read that headline and I thought, f*** you, Mother Jones. This is shameless and this is disgusting. What a terrible headline. And it's not like they're the only place who does it, but just that that garbage where they're not even doing anything. They're just recycling somebody else's stupid-ass tweet. And then they put up an article as if they deserve the traffic for this headline that you hate the headline immediately when you read it, but you still feel like you need to read the article because you're like, what is the tweet that he put out? What did he tweet? <laughs> Why isn't it normal? Like, you just feel like the whole thing makes you feel like we were up for Thanksgiving. We went by my girlfriend's mom's house and she bought all these snacks for the house because uh, she thought that we would eat them. We didn't eat them there because we were barely at the house. It's being renovated. That was a bad decision. In any case, we were given the snacks to bring home. So right but now, but I'm sitting above... She thought a, of you, though. She thought yeah, of you. It's, it's, a very, it's a very nice thought. But now I'm right. sitting above a kitchen that has like three bags of giant Doritos, and I just feel like garbage if I eat them, but I can't throw them away because that's just being wasteful. What am I supposed to do with three bags, like party-sized bags of Doritos? I'm just going to feel like and she eat them. She bought that many. She bought Doritos, huh? 
Yeah, it's like how how much time did you expect us to spend at your house over Thanksgiving when we already had reservations somewhere else? Like seven years to eat all of these chips? Well, I guess we could have lit a fire with the chips. They're very oily. But nevertheless, that it's just garbage. It's junk food headlines. And, you're not a you're not a Doritos man. Oh, that's the problem. But they're so good. But you just feel like when you eat them. Yeah. Just like when you click that headline. If you put that article in front of someone, they're going to read it. They're going to oh, click it. I know. They they're going to read it. And they're going to be like, oh, I hate myself for doing this. I hate the website for doing this. I hate Donald Trump for starting this in the first place. But you're still going to go through. So they're going to get traffic. It's going to be hate traffic. It's going to be hate traffic. And, hate traffic. And people don't know how to measure that. You don't get the measure hate traffic versus actual interested loyal traffic. Most yeah, you know, traffic on the Internet is hate traffic. I hear uh, I'm hearing rumors now that the A's just added a cheap out a cheap breakout slugger. <laughs> well, I got to know who that is. If it's Matt Joyce, I'm going to kill someone. <laughs> oh, it is Matt Joyce. <laughs> I hope he shares some of his World Series MVP money. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is gonna this is gonna get published after the the post I'm writing on Friday gets published. So. Uh, I think the thing about Gerard Dyson, I didn't set out to write about Gerard Dyson, but I don't know if you read. I put up a post about Billy Hamilton on Thursday. And yeah. uh, through an analysis that I ran, Billy Hamilton is, I wouldn't say he's historically unprecedented. There I, there aren't shades of you know uniqueness or unprecedentedness, but if there were shades, he would be a dark shade of those words. And so I was trying to find out if there are, who are the most atypical players in baseball right now. Position players are the easiest ones to measure. So I, I looked over the last three years and ran a similar uh, measure, and Billy Hamilton is indeed the most atypical... Hey, America. Uh, he's the most atypical position player in baseball based on his hitting, his base running, and his defense. That's interesting. Okay, so I already wrote about that. Uh, then I wanted to see who else might have been the most atypical. And in second place, very close to Billy Hamilton, is Gerard Dyson. So Gerard Dyson, by this analysis, is also one of the most atypical position players in baseball for reasons very similar to Hamilton. And then there's a pretty good-sized gap between Dyson and third place. So that's the post. So the post is probably going to be headlined something like the most atypical players in baseball, which is not misleading. It just takes care not to say, by the way, this is mostly Gerard Dyson and f*** you. But the, you know, but it could actually work out because I can probably say, oh, here's a here's a bargain trade acquisition. He's got one year left. He's barely going to get paid anything. Maybe he's an everyday player. Maybe the Cardinals should pick up Gerard Dyson. Maybe by the time this podcast is published, they will have picked up Gerard Dyson. Something to watch. So people love trade rumors. So there's Gerard Dyson is an interesting player. <clears throat> he is. I would, I would describe him as atypical. Almost as atypical as Billy Hamilton. Just if I'm gonna, <laughs> if I'm just gonna, you know, ballpark it. He feels like someone that five years ago or maybe ten. Probably five. We we would have all freaked out over being like, they're not playing him enough. He should play more. Look at his war. Look how good he is. But for some reason, now we feel like we're past that because he has really good value numbers despite like semi-regular playing time. And he feels like someone who should probably have been given an everyday chance. Now he's like 32 years old, so maybe it's too late. But it, it's interesting how we've evolved to not care about <laughs> players like that so much anymore, even though we used to love him. He made a lot of contact <laughs> this past year, too. That's what he does. He makes terrible contact, and then he runs like hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had, he had a pretty good season. Yeah, hmm. and he, uh, and you know, the Royals are in a a weird situation where so many of their pretty good players are in the last year of the contract, 
And so you wonder, can they really do much to compete, or should they sell? And if they sell, I mean, he's just Gerard Dyson. Who even cares if they lose him? But he, like, for teams who think they might want Ender Inziarte, you can probably get Dyson for way less. Do you think that? I don't know. Do you think he's the sort of player whose value increases inordinately at the deadline? Because he's a he could be the exact type of thing that it, he's a, a sort of luxury player that a team from which a team might benefit if they're entering the playoffs. I think he's a useful player for the playoffs because you can kind of spot him and you know you probably don't want him facing a lot of lefties. Uh, I don't think he's someone you can leverage in the playoffs because you know you can use him off the bench but then he has very limited utility and if he's a hitter there's not much you can do it's not like a pitcher where you can basically determine how much they're going to be used and uh and overuse them so i don't think he's a, a premium piece he's definitely uh, as like a contract player who's in his early 30s he's not like a, a put you over the top piece mm-hmm. uh so if you're a, if you turn if you get him then you turn out to be bad well you, there's no real reason to keep him for the second half right but uh, no, I think he he should be gettable now, and even at the deadline, I don't think he would be expensive. He does not have a lot of plate appearances against left-handed pitchers. No, that's because he's terrible at hitting. But you know, yeah. so is Billy Hamilton, and he's still been valuable. And yeah. the fact of the matter is that Draw Dice is like six or seven years older, but he's maintained a very similar skill set. Well, that's Here's a fun that's... fact. The same list, the same list of the most atypical baseball players. This has already been published, so I'm not spoiling anything except to you right now. The most atypical player by this analysis, Billy Hamblin. Okay. Second, Gerard Dyson. Okay, there's a theme here, right? Little guys who can't hit, and they're fast. Third place, David Ortiz. That's a different person. The complete opposite, complete opposite type of player, which is fun. What makes him, uh, what are the attributes that make him so different? I can't do shit, but hit really well. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, he's he's atypical. the The top ten is basically guys who can't hit but do other stuff, or guys who can hit and do nothing else, like Miguel Cabrera. Oh, and then there's Mike Trout, who's just awesome at everything. Yeah, he's anomalous for that. He does it. He does. Uh, wh- what if you if you toned Mike Trout down to like seventy percent or like fifty percent of Mike Trout? Mm-hmm. What player is that? Uh, AJ Pollock. Okay, yeah, maybe that'd be interesting. If you just like turn the dial down on everything, <laughs> what do you end? What do you end up with? I always so like in in some video games when a player gets an injury in like sports video games, they lose like some percentage of their ability until they're healed. Mm-hmm. But you know, you always imagine like I wonder if if in this game if I had the ability, I wonder how like I could how this player would do even though he has a broken leg. You know, <laughs> like, in the game he's still like a fraction. Of his his ratings are still like not zero, even though realistically, if you have a broken leg, you're a zero. <laughs> but I think that AJ Pollock is like video game Mike Trout with a broken leg. That's, it doesn't sound like like a glowing review, <laughs> but it's pretty good. Maybe okay, maybe not broken leg because AJ Pollock still runs well, he still plays good defense. So he's like, I don't know, like if hand Mike hand Trout. Hand. Mm-hmm. He, like, slept on his neck funny, so he can't really turn very well. You know, you ever, like, wake up with a stiff neck? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's not good. Yeah. You get no sympathy for he, it, but yeah, it really ruins makes, your life. I think it's, like, he makes more contact. I feel like you'd have to, if you had someone who makes slightly less contact than Trout. Maybe yeah, he could probably swing weaker, if that makes sense, and try to maximize his contact. It doesn't make sense. All right. You asked right. me, ask me if that makes sense. It doesn't. It doesn't, actually. All right. You're being a horse's ass. <laughs> okay. You know what? Actually, Billy Butler is Mike Trout with a broken leg. 
<laughs> maybe maybe Billy Butler's like if Mike tried had a broken leg for a year and a half and he just sat and he ate. Yeah. Because he couldn't re- and he couldn't really exercise it off. Who so maybe that's be? what the A's were going for. Maybe the A's got Billy Butler thinking like maybe the leg is going to heal. What about what about Alex Gordon as Mike Trout decreased, like mm-hmm. decreased Mike Trout? He plays. He doesn't play center field. He plays corner mm-hmm. outfield. Mm-hmm. He strikes out a little bit more. Walks mm-hmm. a little bit less. Has a little bit less power. Mm-hmm. Not quite as fast today. I might have already said that. And he's also mm-hmm. a little bit older. Am I making sense to you? Yeah, I don't see how that's meaningfully different from AJ Pollock. But knock yourself out. AJ Pollock only strikes out like thirteen percent of the time. To me, to be making contact is like a big part of anyone's game. It's like a big part of their profile. Because as, as the contact goes down, the power's got to come up. Uh-huh. All right. But I'm saying yeah. it makes a little bit less contact and has a little bit less power, and is therefore not as good. All right. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you Gordon. Oh, you. You know what? It's your generosity that I'll most remember. <laughs> Michael Saunders. How about Michael Saunders as slightly deteriorated Mike Trout? Slightly. Actually, oh, there you go. Michael Saunders is like if Mike Trout tried to bat left-handed. <laughs> Do you think how would it work out? How good if you just take a typical batter, mm-hmm. freakishly talented, obviously, but typical batter, and you're just like you're 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 batting lefty today, Trout. <laughs> I always so there was the. Ichiro would uh, take some of his batting practice batting right-handed. He wouldn't. He never brought it into a game, never did anything with it. But anyone who would watch, I'm sure it's it's been mythologized by this point. But people would watch. I remember Derek Zumsteg had a story where he was watching Mariners batting practice and Ichiro was up and he's like, everything looks normal. And then he looked close and he's like, wait a second, because uh, Ichiro is batting right-handed and he would be able to hit. Now, granted, that's something that he worked on over years, just probably for his own uh, his balance and reaction time. But I believe there was also talk that Yu Darvish is able to throw left-handed. So I always wanted to see left-handed Yu Darvish pitching against right-handed Ichiro Suzuki, but it, it never happened. Oh, I'm sure that. Happen. I think Ichiro would have the upper hand. Oh uh, yeah, I'm I'm virtually certain. But I I do wonder, Mike Trout. I don't know, 170 WRC plus batting right-handed. That's pretty well his established true mm-hmm. talent. What do you, off the top of your head, he you give him you give him spring training. So he has a month and a half to work yeah. on batting left-handed. Then he gets a full season. What does he do? <clears throat> it's. I don't think it would. I don't think he would post the league average line. Yeah, but how close? Uh, I think it would be pretty bad. I think it would be along the line of a pitcher. Maybe better than a pitcher. I feel like he'd be better than a pitcher. You do. Yeah, because think- I'm also wondering just. Like now he sees, now he sees a breaking ball from a different point of view, right? It probably like his eye dominance or whatever probably influences it. There's just a lot going on. Like everything he's done has been in the service of batting from the right hand, from the right side. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I I'm not optimistic, but maybe better than a pitcher. You think you you think better than a pitcher? I think better than a pitcher. I think he would be bad, but maybe like Billy Hamilton. I mean, more power, I believe. Uh, there are cases... All right, give me a second here. I'm going to research something. I think... On the air, you're going to research? I'm going to research... Well, okay, so it didn't quite pan out. But every so often... Like, players have to choose to become 
switch hitters at some point. You're not born as a switch hitter. So in 2015, I don't know why I remember this. G-Man Choi, real five pick, played with the Angels a little bit. Mm. A G-Man Choi decided he was going to become a switch hitter. He previously had batted, what was it, left-handed? And then he was going to start batting right-handed. Now, G-Man Choi did not do this very long. He got hurt. Uh, but in 2015, in the minor leagues, he batted, what is this, 17 times as a right-handed hitter, something he had not done, to my knowledge, as a prof- uh, professional before. And he went 6 for 14, batting right-handed. With really? a double. Uh, that's a very small sample of one player who, for all I know, might have batted right-handed when he was younger, but he picked it up, and then he he got hurt. So that was so much for that experiment. And I believe with the Angels, he went back to just hitting left-handed. Uh, but still, there's there's something there. I think that, obviously, if if Mike Trout just picked up and tried to bat lefty today, he'd suck. But I think that you he could probably adjust pretty quickly. How about Leonis Martin as... as Deteriorated, Mike Trout. Yeah, I can see that. I can. Yeah, I can Martin see Martin or more as, Saunders. Or are they the same guy? No, they're not the same uh, guy. Martin's a little better on the field. He throws. Yeah, he's got a better arm than Trout. Uh, Mar- Mar- oh, he does. Uh, so, so Michael Saunders is basically if Mike Trout did everything backwards. I think <laughs> uh, Martin is better than than Trout at some things. I think he's a better center fielder. He's got a better arm. Uh, but he hits like if Trout were left-handed. He, he probably does actually. <laughs> yeah, eighty. He's got like a roughly eighty, eighty WRC plus over the course of yeah. his career. Yeah. Hey, this is over. <laughs> Just so you know, this is over. Fulfill the obligation. That was a good. You, thing. F- you fulfill the obligation, Jeff Sullivan. I apologize for the cursing. That was un- unprofessional. Oh, it was. It's a long list, and. Uh, I know that some people listen. I, I know one listener in particular. Who will put it on? And his child is definitely in the car when he does it. <laughs> so I'm thinking of him when I when I when I add the bleeps. Uh yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, let's say uh, for the purposes of this, we'll say goodbye. But uh, but thank so but thank you, uh, Jeff Sullivan. Thank you. That has been Jeff Sullivan, senior editor at Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Zestuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.